Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Psalms as we begin another new book study together in the Old Testament. We come now to the book of Psalms, which is actually, if you haven't noticed yet, the largest book uh, that we have content-wise, really, in the entirety of our Bible. Uh, It gives to us really a tremendous focus, we'll see, on the subject of seeking God and just honest communication with God, direct speech, we'll see in prayer and worship and uh, and songs. Uh, The book of Psalms, of course, is another one of the what we call poetic books, a particular section of the Bible. We've looked at historical books. When we now look at Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, these are what we refer to as poetic books. And again, keep in mind that Hebrew poetry is unlike English poetry that we know it in its form and style. It's not necessarily a poem of rhyming, uh, kind of roses are red, violets are blue, what we typically think of when we think about uh, poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry is more a poetry of thought. It's a poetry of expression. Uh, We'll see in it repeated ideas, but yet stated in different ways to kind of reinforce ideas. And you really see this very explicitly and directly, I think, most clearly in the book of Proverbs, where you'll see a statement made, and then you'll see another statement made using a different uh, maybe idea or language, but it's a, a reinforcement of the same thought or the same truth. So we see that in Hebrew poetry, and we also see at times... Uh, contrasting ideas uh, at times for comparison where one uh, idea or picture or concept will be shown and then there'll be a contrasting idea or picture or concept to kind of show a comparison between two different ways or between uh, two different approaches to something, two different outcomes. We'll see that. The book of Psalms is basically often referred to as the hymnal for the Hebrew people because it was believed uh, that the psalms were all of them originally set to music in some way and were actually sung by the Hebrew people. So it was sort of the Hebrew hymnal. Now, we're not sure, of course, of the melodies and the tempo in which these different psalms were put uh, to music and were actually sung, but what God did preserve for us by his Spirit is the lyrics. So we may not have all the melodies, we may not have all the tempo, but the Holy Spirit gave to us the lyrics, the content of these songs and poetic uh, expressions that were put to song. And of course, some of them we know uh, we do sing as songs. Some people have been able to pick up or maybe set their own melodies. And maybe through the ages, God gave us the freedom to be able to take these Spirit-inspired songs and different people who are gifted to be able to put their own tempo and melody to them to be able to sing them. Now, of course, we're going to see, if you're not already familiar, many of us are with the book of Psalms. It's quite a famous Bible book. Uh, It's a very, very relatable book because it is filled with personal but yet very spirit-inspired expressions from the human heart regarding all the different experiences of life. I mean, there is a lot of human emotion conveyed in every different range of the spectrums throughout the Psalms. In some ways, that's one of the reasons why we connect with the book of Psalms so well, I think, as people, because you see everything from joy and excitement and enthusiasm to depression and discouragement and feeling downcast, like the the, the writer is stuck in a pit in his life. Uh, You see fear and anxiety, and yet you see courage and confidence And we see all these varied ranges of human emotion that we go through as people in our hearts and thoughts in our experiences of life. And there's lots of human emotion in every range that's expressed. And because of that, we can really connect with it. The writers reveal their thoughts and their feelings in very honest and vulnerable speech. And it's written really to describe, I think, by the Holy Spirit, all different types of situations and experiences of life that we face And we travel through as humans, and if there were a simple theme, it would probably simply be that life is hard, but God is good. 
Life is hard. Life has challenges. Life has hurts. Life has difficulties. Life has different seasons. Sometimes we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23. Other times God leads us in the green pastures. But as the word says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me, your rod and your staff, Lord, they comfort me, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So yes, life's hard, but yet God is good, and we all deal with different ranges of emotions and thoughts as people that we go through, and that's why I think we can come to the Psalms so often, because it is one of those Bible books that as we begin to read it, we just kind of resonate very quickly. Yes, that's exactly how I'm feeling, or I felt like that before, or I've experienced that before, or that's exactly what I'm experiencing right now, and we connect with it on such a personal level. And it teaches us really how to relate to God in humble honesty and sincere worship despite our circumstances. It's been referred to before as a diary of devotion, of directions for how to praise God. It's a manual, we'll see, on the value of worship and singing to God despite what we are going through. It teaches us of the importance of prayer and of communication with God and turning to God, seeking God, crying out to God in all things. And as again, I said, we find it very relatable because of the genuine human expressions of struggle and emotion and prayer and praise. And it really teaches us, we'll see as well, a great amount of lessons about God's attributes, God's nature. We learn uh, about the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, that he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, that he's omnipresent. Again, think of Psalm 139 when we get there quite a ways out, but all the different attributes of God's nature revealed in that psalm. And all throughout, we learn great, great lessons about God and about the ways that God works in and through all of our lives. So uh, with that as sort of a backdrop, there'll be different types of psalms we'll look at. We'll we'll talk about some of those different types of forms that we go through uh, as we're seeing them together. But let's jump in Psalm 1 and begin to look at some of these psalms together. Psalm 1 begins with really giving to us a contrast in Hebrew poetry between the godly man and the ungodly man, between the man who is blessed because he knows and serves God and includes God in his life and lets God rule over his life and the word of God govern his life, and the man who does not include God in his life, but yet walks according to his own ways, according to the ideas of this world, and really lives in rebellion to God and how that brings not happiness but misery instead. Now, notice it begins by simply saying, "'Blessed is the man,' who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." So there's the godly man, the righteous man who is blessed. And the contrast of the ungodly man who does not include or want God in his life, verse 4, the contrast, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish." So the first thing we see here in Psalm 1 is the writer being led by the Holy Spirit gives to us really uh, God's instruction, you might say, for how to experience a blessed life. I mean, I don't know who wouldn't want or prefer to have a blessed life. It begins by saying, blessed is the man. Literally, that Hebrew term blessed literally means Oh, how happy is the man. That's the idea of the term blessed there in the Hebrew that's used. In fact, it's actually in the plural form. It literally could be translated happy, happy, happy is the man. Or great is the happiness of the man. And then it gives to us really some explanation of how do we experience 
a blessed and a happy life. What does that include? Well, the writer tells us this is how to experience a happy and a blessed life if you want one as a man, as a woman. He says, blessed or happy is that man who walks, first of all, not in the counsel of the ungodly. So notice the happy person, first of all, does not follow the advice or the input, it says, of the ungodly. That's idea of counsel. Those who are ungodly, that is those who are without a relationship with God. Those who don't follow God, who don't include God in their lives, they may want to offer us counsel. They may give to us their input on matters about our lives. They may try and offer us advice in sincerity or just because they want to tell us their opinion. But the Bible says to us, look, we should not walk, that is, follow the path of the advice and the input of ungodly people who don't know or serve God. They may say things to us, but we must be careful that we don't embrace their ideas and walk in their counsel. Uh, we should seek counsel from God himself. The Bible says that God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. The word of God, Psalm 119, is going to speak about repeatedly is our counselor. Uh, again, the, the testimonies of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the truths of the Lord in the scripture, they become our counselors. The Holy Spirit can give to us counsel as well through other people. But when we seek counsel, if we want to be happy and blessed, we need to avoid walking in the counsel or seeking counsel from the ungodly. Instead, we should seek counsel from God, from God's word, and thirdly, from the godly, that is God's people, those who know God personally, who are in relationship with God, and also adhere in their own lives to the truth and the authority of God's word. So if you want to have a happy and a blessed life, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but instead follow, if anything, the counsel of God himself as he gives it to you by his spirit as God gives you counsel from his word, or as God uses godly people to offer to you counsel, that's who we as God's people should be seeking counsel from and following that type of counsel. Notice he says not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Also, the happier, blessed man doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Now, the idea, notice, is you're going to see this slowing down progression. Verse 1, walks, then stand then sit. The idea is, is you're getting more and more comfortable. And sometimes if a person begins to err, this is what we begin to do. First, you know, we're, we're walking in a path we shouldn't. Then we kind of, we stand and we're kind of getting a little bit more comfortable. And then when you sit down, you're the most comfortable position possible. And the idea is do not allow yourself to become, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, conformed, become conformed attached to participating in the patterns of this unsaved world. So we're not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor are we to stand in the same path as sinners. That is, we're not to get comfortable standing in a sinful path or lifestyle. We may sin temporarily, but we should never stand for a life of ongoing sin. We may stumble into sin, but we should never begin to stand for and tolerate to any extended period of time a lifestyle of sin. We don't want to join in. That is the path of sinners, and we don't want to participate in that path as God's people because what will it do? It will rob you of happiness. It will rob you of experiencing the blessed life that God wants to give to you. So the happy person avoids the pathway that sinful people travel on. They live differently to live according to God's path, the way of the Lord. Nor do we sit in the seat of the scornful. Again, the scornful are those who mock, those who uh, deride and, and speak uh, hurtfully against God and his ways. Again, that we, we don't allow ourselves to participate in those things. But what do we do instead? Verse 2, we don't do the things mentioned in verse 1. That brings happiness and a blessed life, avoiding what's wrong. But then he speaks about doing certain things, and this is what brings a blessed and a happy life. The blessed man, the happy man, is someone, verse 2, whose delight, the word delight speaks of enjoyment, fulfillment, 
You may say, you know, I, I mean, I find such, you know, delight and fulfillment in my grandchildren. I find such pleasure or delight in doing this particular thing. Well, the Bible tells us, we're going to see Psalm 37, in fact, I believe that's where it is, delight yourself in the Lord. Uh, that is, we're to find delight and enjoyment, fulfillment and pleasure in the Lord and the things of the Lord. And here he speaks about finding delight, enjoyment and pleasure, notice, in the law of the Lord. That is the word of God in the law of the Lord. We should find our delight and fulfillment in God's word. And more than that, that we, he says, in his law meditates day and night. So again, notice, we don't just read God's word academically. We don't just skim through it like an assignment for an academic class that we're taking. Uh, we don't just read it as a religious routine where we participate to check off the box, again, like a homework reading assignment as a part of a, a syllabus for a class that we're taking. No, in, instead, we, we read the Word of God because we are believing that through the Spirit-inspired, living, and powerful book, that the very voice of God by His Spirit down through the ages continues to speak to us personally, generation after generation, week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year, that the Lord continues to meet us and it speaks to us today, right now. And so therefore, when we read the word of God, we read it with a a genuine interest to think about what it's saying, to really contemplate. He says uh, that we not only enjoy the word of God, the law of the Lord, but in the law of the Lord, God's word, the person actually meditates day and night. The idea there is, is more than just a quick cursory reading. We actually ponder it to meditate, not the idea of what we often think of um, Eastern versions of meditation where people kind of disconnect mentally. The biblical idea of meditation is the exact opposite, not disconnecting, uh, disconnecting, disconnecting mentally, but actually engaging mentally and really thinking over, chewing upon, thinking over again and again and really just pondering more deeply than just a quick surface thought what the Word of God is actually saying, and more than that, what it's actually saying to us, to where it actually becomes a part of our life. That Hebrew term meditate, there is actually a term that was used to refer to a process where uh, cows who have multiple stomachs in their digestive tract are known to basically chew up their food. They swallow it down into the first stomach chamber, and then they regurgitate it back up and chew on it again, and then swallow it back down into the next chamber. And this process goes on repeated times. It's often referred to as chewing the cud. The idea is they chew up the, the, what they eat initially. They draw out what nutrients they can. They swallow it down, but then they bring it back up, and they chew on the same thing again, and they try and get a little bit more out of it. Then they swallow it down and let it become a part of uh, you know, them to help their body, and then they bring it back up and they chew on it again. Well, this is the idea of meditating, the Hebrew idea that Jews there for the Word of God. You just keep chewing on the Word of God. You just continue to think upon it. You know, God, what are you really saying to me here? And it's amazing how as we really begin to do that, how God can reveal things to us. He can really communicate things to us. And when we really set our heart to enjoy the Word of God and meditate upon what the Scriptures say, and again, not just study them for academic facts and information, but really wanting to hear what God's saying to us. It's amazing the marvels of the things that God can begin to convey to our hearts in personal ways. I love, I believe it was Warren Wearsby who said, I certainly want to study my Bible in context, historically, and make sure I'm interpreting it accurately. But he said, by the same token, I always read my Bible in the present tense with my own heart. The idea is reading the word of God, believing that there are truths and things that God is saying in each phrase and on those pages that are intended to speak directly into our lives today and that we hear them. It's a promise. It's an encouragement, maybe a correction, uh, an answer to something, or, or God may be directing us in relation to something we're seeking him about, and we hear it as a word from the Lord, and then we just kind of meditate upon it. And day and night, we just kind of think it over. Boy, all the things we spend time thinking about and all the things we give our mental attention to, would to God, how much more blessed our lives would be if we'd spend more time day and night meditating 
on the law of the Lord upon God's word, thinking about that over and over rather than thinking about all the other things that we do that often just make us very unhappy. How much more happy and blessed perhaps might we be if we gave more meditation to the word of God. So this is what the blessed life looks like. The man who delights in the law of the Lord, in his law he meditates day and night. And the Bible says the resulting outcome of doing these type of things, verse 1 and 2, he shall become like a tree, now it's metaphorical here, an analogy, like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So the picture here of the happy life the blessed life, notice, it's someone who is the result of having right relationship with God, of having a sincere dedication to the word of God. That person avoiding the ways of sinners and ungodly people, as a result of doing those things, they end up having a very rooted and stable existence to their life. They become like a tree that's planted by rivers of water. The idea is a tree that has sent down its roots, and when a tree is planted by rivers of water, it's able to draw from that unseen source, to draw from the rivers of water nearby what it needs to continue to become more and more stable and strong, and more than that, more and more fruitful. And notice, not only does it bring a stable life, but the happy and blessed man doesn't just have a life of stability. He also has a life of great fruitfulness. He says that man's life will bring forth its fruit in its season, and fruit comes in seasons. Uh, different types of fruit in different seasons. Sometimes we have seasons of abundant fruit. Other times it may seem like times are a little more dry and not as fruitful. But in the right seasons, God, by his Spirit, causes our lives to bear good fruit. Jesus, remember, said in John 15 that if we abide in him, that we will bear much fruit. And we can have that stable, fruitful life where we're not withering up and struggling. And he says, verse 3, not only that, but it ends up bringing a prospered, blessed life. That is, God causes us to flourish. Whatever he does shall prosper. That is, that the blessing of the Lord is upon the life of a person that lives like this. When someone lives in these ways, according to verses 1 through 3, they experience God's prosperity, not worldly prosperity per se, the way that we may measure prosperity in the world's mindset, but God's idea of prospering, flourishing, stable, of sound mind, someone who is at peace and is fruitful and bearing the fruit of the Spirit and being a fruitful child of God, having an impact for the kingdom of God. So that is the blessed and the happy life. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be blessed? Verse 1 through 3 describes where that comes from and what it looks like. But then he gives the contrast. He says, but the ungodly, that is those who are without God, don't want God in their life, they are not so. The idea is that they don't experience these same things. They experience the exact opposite. They are miserable. They are unhappy. They are living a life of struggle and undue strain often. The Bible tells us there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. They are not so as the blessed man, but they are instead like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, the chaff speaks of the exact opposite of a tree planted by rivers of water. A tree planted by rivers of water is rooted, it's stable, it's strong. It has a source to sustain itself. It's flourishing and prospering. But the chaff is that uh, light, worthless substance that just is easily blown away by the wind. Therefore, he says, verse 5, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment because they're not prepared. To stand before God, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the picture of the ungodly is the exact opposite, a life of instability, a life that is struggling continually, a life that really has no strength to it, a life that has no hope, a life that has no sense of peace. Often people are miserable who don't know God because they're neglecting the very purpose of their life and bringing continual pain and heartache and ruin into their lives by living in rebellion to God. Because the scripture says, woe is him who strives against his maker. Verse six, he concludes saying, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Again, you notice the difference. 
the way of the righteous, the way of the righteous reminds us no doubt of the way of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the way of living right in relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, referring to how to get to the Father and enter into heaven. So he says again, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The idea is God is acquainted. He's intimately acquainted with, and he's familiar with the pathway of the righteous because that leads them into a right standing and a right relationship with God now and then ultimately eternally. However, the way of the ungodly, which is the opposite direction, not following God's way, rebelling against God, that leads ultimately in perishing. That is being separated from God eternally, not just struggling now, but ultimately perishing eternally. So two ways, the way of the blessed man, the happy man, the way of the ungodly, miserable, and unrighteous man, and two different outcomes for both lives. Psalm 2 then speaks to us, saying, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and let us cast their cords from us. Now, we can tell Psalm 2 in some ways is speaking prophetically, looking down through the ages, not just of the individual man rebelling against God. Psalm 1 dealt with the individual, the blessed man, the ungodly man. Now we're looking at something where the, the, the world as a whole, the, the collection of all of the ungodly in the world, the nations who are living in rebellion against God. So now we're not just talking about individual rebellion against God. We're talking about collective worldwide rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it in some ways, no doubt, foreshadows all the way out into the time of, no doubt, the, the days of the Antichrist, when there's a one world order and where uh, nations come together and ultimately decide to, in a universal way, sort of rebel against the Lord and try and fight against him. Uh, David quotes this very psalm in Acts chapter 4, or excuse me, uh, Peter actually quotes it in Acts chapter 4, giving recognition to David being the writer of it as the one who wrote it, and he quotes it in regards to the persecution they were experiencing. And Peter quotes this saying that it was David's very words, but uh, the writer is questioning why. He says, well, why do the nations rage? That is, they're, they're angry. And what are they angry about? They're angry about God. They're angry about God's rulership. They don't want God to be in charge or God to have authority. They want to be self-governed. They want to live their own way. So the nations rage and anger against God. And the people, he says, of the nations, again, the nations plotting a vain thing. That is, they're plotting something, but it's ultimately vain. The idea is it won't work. It's worthless. It will fail. It's empty. And ultimately, no doubt, I believe this will come to pass in some ways, maybe in something like a UN resolution where, again, the nations all come together and they decide that's it. We, we do not want God. We are throwing God out of our lives and, and, and we are casting off any of this idea that God would be involved, that God is real or that God should rule over us. And notice God says, why, why do the nations rage in such a way against me? What did I do to them? I've been nothing but a kind creator to them taking care of them as they've rebelled against me. And, and why are they plotting this vain thing as if somehow it's going to work, as if ever it would work to ultimately fight against God? He says, the kings of the earth, notice, set themselves and rulers take counsel together. And this picture is no doubt what's going to happen, probably all the way down to the time where under the Antichrist and his leaders, the kings and rulers that he brings together to counsel to ultimately rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says against the Lord, that's Yahweh, and against his anointed. That word anointed is the Hebrew term, the Messiah, the Mashiach, or in the Greek, it becomes the Christos. It's a reference to the Christ. So these rulers of the earth and these kings are coming together in a council, in a universal way, and they are going to fight against God and his anointed, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
thinking that they will succeed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be entangled with God or his Messiah trying to tell us what to do. Verse 4, here's God's response to their universal collective rebellion as nations and rulers coming together to fight against God. Verse 4, he who sits, notice again, that's a position of being relaxed, so God's not stressed when world rulers rebel against him. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The idea is that God in a sense, looks upon man's collective rebellion, which seems to them to be something that is so uh, you know, uh, successful. Hey, we're going to throw off God. We're going to fight against God. And God in the heavens sort of chuckles. Do, do you really? I mean, do you really think that somehow you're going to succeed fighting against me or throwing off my authority over the world and over the earth in some way. God who sits in the heaven, he, he laughs at this almost as if way, you know, to some degree, it's like a, you know, a, a two-year-old trying to start a fight with, uh, you know, a successful uh, MMA, you know, combat fighter. Is it some, looking at that, just do you really think you have any possible chance of succeeding there? And God just kind of laughs at humanity's efforts, thinking they can resist him. He holds them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, saying, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Again, referring to ultimately setting up the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns after the time of the tribulation, Jesus will return back to this earth after that seven years of tribulation. You and I, his saints with him, who have been raptured, And taken up into glory, we will return with him to overthrow the rebellion, ultimately, of the Antichrist and all those who are together with him. And Jesus will set up his throne in Jerusalem. God will set his king on his holy hill in Zion. The true ruler, Jesus Christ, will sit upon the throne. And verse 7 says, And I will declare the decree, the Lord said to me, now this seems to be Jesus, the voice of Jesus, speaking of God the Father. Again, Yahweh, the Lord, has said to me, it should be capitalized, you are my son. That is Yahweh God the Father saying to Christ, the Messiah, you are my son. Again, affirming the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, the father says to the son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Again, the father will give unto the son that which belongs to the son, that title deed of the earth, the nations, and everything that the son has claimed rightfully through his redemptive work in his death and resurrection. And when he returns, he will receive his full inheritance from the Father, which is to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords over the nations of the earth. So here, the Father saying of the Son, when the time comes and he returns, ask of me and I will give to you your inheritance, the nations and the ends of the earth, which will be your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, when Jesus returns, he's not returning the second time as a humble suffering servant as he came in his first coming. He will come back the second time in his return as a righteous, powerful, glorified king and victor. And he will rule... With a rod of iron, the Bible says. Again, Jesus will be benevolent, but he will be a benevolent dictator. It will be the first right, proper, and healthy dictatorship when the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified king, returns in all of his power and breaks the pride of man, deals with the rebellion of humanity once for all, breaking them like with a rod of iron and dashing to pieces like a potter's vessel, the hardened hearts of men. Interesting, the Bible refers to our lives like pottery and here dashing to pieces 
a potter's vessel because the idea is, is those vessels of humanity have become hardened towards God and Jesus will ultimately break the pride of those who sadly have lived in rebellion and turned against him as he comes back. And they're aligned there in the valley of Megiddo thinking somehow they're going to overthrow Jesus as he comes forth, uh, arriving in the eastern sky, and yet he's going to come back. And with a word, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, he will overthrow the armies of men and the Antichrist and false prophet and deal with them, making swift work of them, and then rule and reign in an enforced righteousness for a thousand years upon the earth during the kingdom age. And it will be an enforced righteousness with the authority of Jesus Christ as king. Verse 10 the instruction, now therefore, he says, be wise, O kings, don't be foolish. Again, God takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want to see humanity behave foolishly. The Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Literally, the language is the fool says in his heart, no God. The fool says, no God. There is no God. Or, or I don't want God. No to God in every way. I don't want God's involvement in my life. God says that is the most foolish mindset a human being could ever have. So here God says, please, be wise, O kings. Again, the wisest thing any national ruler, any king, any political ruler can do is acknowledge God. Acknowledge God as creator. Acknowledge God's authority. The Bible says, you know, righteousness is what exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Blessed, and oh, how happy is the nation whose God is the Lord. So he says, be wise, O kings, before Jesus returns in his power and glory, in judgment. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Again, kings, judges, acknowledging the ultimate king, the ultimate judge. That is the best way to rule anyone, to rule with an understanding that there is a greater ruler who we should always take into consideration His guidance, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Have a healthy fear and reverence of God. The Bible is going to tell us in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of having right knowledge about things. Have a healthy respect for God. That is the first step towards having healthy wisdom and making decisions. When you discount the fear of God and you have no fear of of what's right in the sight of God, You have no basis for really proper reasoning. But when you do have a respect for God and you want to make sure something is right and okay with God and not just right and okay for you or if you're a political leader for your constituents and making people happy or vote for you again, but instead you say, I've got to do what's right in the sight. If you don't do that and you just disregard God to make people happy or do what you please, there's no basis for good reasoning anymore. All healthy reasoning goes out the window. So he says, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. He says, verse 12, kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. The idea of kiss the son there referring to the picture of kissing a ruler. Someone was a king were a ruler upon a throne and you approach them uh, to you know, kiss their ring or to kiss their foot or whatever, that expression of a kiss was the acknowledgement or pledge of loyalty to them as your ruler, as your ruler. As you would kiss their foot or kiss their ring, that was an expression, I pledge to you my submission. I pledge to you my loyalty to your rulership over me as the rightful one in charge. And he says, look, this is the key. Get in right relationship with God now before it's too late. Live in submission to the Lord now. Pledge your loyalty to King Jesus now before he returns. Better to be in right relationship with Jesus now in a love relationship with him now as your Savior than have him return and have to face him one day as your judge. And so he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, avoid his wrath, lest you perish. For blessed are all those who put their trust 
in him. Again, the way to have a blessed life, to be in right relationship with the Lord, especially in regards to his return. Let's look at one more psalm together. Psalm 3, we have time to do one more. This one tells us a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. So we get a little bit of an inscription telling us kind of the backdrop and setting on this psalm. It's during the time of when Absalom, David's son, rebelled against him. It tells us that Absalom stole away the hearts of the people. Absalom kind of led a rebellion in the days of David reigning as king. Second uh, Samuel refers to these events where Absalom was kind of making David try and look bad before the people, and he was in an unhealthy way trying to steal people away from following David as their leader. Uh, and this was, of course, very hurtful because it led to a rebellion against David. Some of his closest family and advisors turned against him in betrayal. And you can imagine the pain this caused to David's heart, as well as just the, uh, the difficulties it brought into David's life. Ultimately, remember, David ends up being pushed out of the area of Jerusalem. He basically says, look, I don't want there to be bloodshed and people to be hurt. So the best thing for me to do, and whether it was the right or wrong thing for David, is David completely retreats. Rather than fight and resist Absalom's rebellion, he just steps aside, completely trusts God's sovereignty and says, look, I'm just going to depart then with a few people. He just kind of heads out of Jerusalem and, and, and disconnects because he doesn't want to see people suffer and get caught kind of in the crossfire of Absalom being a troublemaker. And so David, in this difficult time, penned this psalm. Again, the expressions, we start to see some of this now. I mentioned at the beginning of these expressions of human emotion and experiences with God through prayer and God working in the midst of the things we're dealing with and going through. Look what he says, verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Have you ever had people in your life who have given you trouble? Maybe you've gone through a time where it seems like, you know, there's just more and more people who continue to bring more trouble into your life. They begin to cause problems and make life more difficult for you. He says, Lord, how they've increased who trouble me. Many, he says, again, not just one, many are they who are rising up against me. I feel like there are many people opposing me now, Lord, many people opposing you. Again, David was God's rightful king, his, his selected ruler. And he says, Lord, they're rising up against me and against you and your ways. And, and I feel like I have so many adversaries. And so many are against me. You know, it felt like people are against you in your life, maybe just because you're trying to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. And people are troubling you and they're against you just for trying to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. He says, many are saying of me, there is no help for him in God. Again, the idea, do you really think that God's going to do anything for you? Do you really think that God loves you or cares about you or is going to help you? And people were mocking and insulting David and saying that God wasn't going to come through. The idea is that it was a vain and worthless thing to trust God. Do you really think God's going to be able to help you in this situation? There's no help. And again, this is, I believe, what the lying voice of our enemy spiritually, the devil does, is he wants to discourage us. And when we face something difficult, maybe some opposition in our life or spiritual warfare, maybe we're going through something that is threatening us genuinely causing us to be afraid or intimidated, some experience or situation. And, and, and the doubtful thoughts begin to come into our mind where we start to feel helpless and hopeless. And the devil's whispering into our ear that there, nobody's going to help you in that situation. You're done. You're stuck. There's no help for you. You're never going to get to the other side of that. You're alone. You're isolated. There's no help. God's not going to come through for you. And the doubts and the despair begin to creep into our lives. But look what David did. He turned his eyes away from the things that were threatening him and the scary circumstances and the hard things he was facing, and he got his eyes on the Lord. And that's what we need to do when we're facing these type of situations and dealing with these types of feelings. He says, but you, O Lord, you are a shield for me. What does a shield do? It provides protection from harm. Notice, God doesn't just give us a shield. He becomes our shield. God himself, that's a pretty good shield. I don't think anybody's going to get through God. You don't think anybody's going to pass through God. You know, if a big brother or a father protecting their child or a father protecting you know, uh, his family or a, a man protecting his wife is going to use himself and his body to shield 
from some attacker or some person coming after somebody they love, and, and they kind of get in between, and they shield the person that they love. Well, look, this is the idea here. The Lord becomes our shield. I don't think anybody's going to get past our Father. I don't think anybody's going to get past Jesus that may be threatening us. He says, Lord, you are a shield for me. You are my glory, and you're the one who lifts up my head. I love that picture of the Lord the lifter of our head. He says, I cried to the Lord with my voice and he heard me from his holy hill. What a beautiful picture, crying out to the Lord. Look, that is what we need to do, folks, when we find ourselves experiencing spiritual attack, when we're dealing with adversaries, whether they're literal adversaries or just mental and emotional enemies of our soul attacking us with thoughts, making us fearful, making us worried, making us feel threatened and intimidated, making us feel like it's helpless and hopeless. What we need to remember is the Lord is who shields us. He can shield us no matter how threatening something looks, no matter how intimidating something may be. The Lord can come in and shield us and guard us And he is the one who, when we cry to him with our voice, he hears and he answers and he intervenes as our deliverer, as our helper, as our savior, as the one who comes to our aid to rescue us in those times. And when we find ourselves down, David says, he is the one who is the lifter of my head. The picture there is someone, again, with their head down and somebody coming along and, and putting their hand under their chin in gentle love and lifting up their head and saying, look, you, you, you keep your head up. You keep your head up. You know, sometimes it may happen after somebody goes through a great failure or they're just really bummed and discouraged and somebody puts their hand under their chin in, in love and in kind of this fatherly voice or this encouraging way, hey, you, you, you get your head up. You don't let your head hang down. It's going to be okay. We're going to get through this, and you, you, you get your head up. And, and, and here, this is a beautiful picture. God in all of his power, be it also God in all of his personalness and tenderness, lovingly putting his hand under our chin. He's the lifter of our head. And how many times has the Lord done that on occasion in our lives? He can show his great power, but yet in such a personal way when we're so discouraged or downcast and no one else can lift us up. The Lord lifts up our head and gets our eyes back on him and on what's right rather than what we're struggling with. David says, amidst all these things, and though my life was being threatened and people were chasing me and trying to harm me, he says, however, look, God gave him peace in the midst of it. He said, I lay down and slept. David, how did you sleep in the midst of those things? All these problems, you got family problems, you got work problems, you got circumstance problems, the throne, you know, uh, things are threatened, you know, the, the economy, the, the, everything's falling apart. David, you should, you should be struggling with anxiety. How, what did you have to take before you went to bed to be able to sleep? How many pills did it take? David says, all it took was prayer. He says there, the Lord is my shield, and I cried out to him with my voice, and I know that he heard me. I gave my care to God. I, came, I know that it'll come through because he's come through before. And therefore, he said, after I prayed and cried out to the Lord, God gave me peace. And I was able to lay down. And I slept, he says. And I awoke. And why? For the Lord sustained me. And I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people, David says. Not because David could do anything, but because he knew what God could do. And now his eyes were on the Lord. He was believing in the power of God, the greatness of God, the protection of God, the help of God. And this flooded his soul, his heart, and his mind with peace. So he said, I'm not going to live in chronic fear. I'm not going to be panicked. I'm not going to live in continuous anxiety, terrified and always worried. And what if, and what if, and what if, and what if? David said, no, I won't be afraid of 10,000 people, though they set themselves against me because the Lord is for me. And the Lord loves me and the Lord is with me and my God has all power. And so he says, I laid down and I slept and the Lord is who sustained me. I love how in verse five, he speaks of laying down, sleeping, and then waking up because the Lord sustained him. I mean, just think about that simple reality. We close our eyes and go to sleep at night. And think about what tremendous faith and trust that really requires. How do we know we're going to wake up in the morning? Granted, we set our alarm clock, maybe. But who keeps us breathing all night long? Who keeps our organs functioning all night long for 
six hours, eight hours, however many hours we sleep, who sustains our body during that whole time that we're sleeping? We're not taking care of ourselves. You did a little study on sleep and stuff. Our bodies entered into almost a state of paralysis at some points where we can do absolutely nothing. The reason why we can lay down sleep and that we actually do awake every day is because the Lord sustains us. He sustains our survival. He takes care of us, our every breath. Each breath for those six, seven, eight hours, God gave us each breath. God kept our heart beating. God kept our systems and our body working. God protects us and preserves us. God protected attackers from coming in and killing or murdering David because the Lord sustained him when he could do absolutely humanly nothing to help himself. He was completely helpless, but he knew that God was his helper. And everything that they were trying to tell him to discourage him, there was no help in God. David says, I laid down, slept, and I awoke because the Lord sustained me. The reality is only God can help me. But I so trust in God's help, I was able to rest. And the greatest illustration in some ways was just that night of sleep day after day. Think about that, how the Lord is our sustainer. Each day when we sleep, we prove that very reality. So he says, verse 7, arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. For you have struck, look at the language again, you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. God, you punch my enemies in the jaw. You break their teeth for me, God. You've broken the teeth of the ungodly. So David says, God, because you take care of my enemies for me, I won't be afraid. Arise, come to my aid, O God. David says confidently, salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing is on your people. Again, David expressing his confidence. Again, in a matter of eight short verses, notice he goes from kind of fear and difficulty and intimidation and threats and hardships and things that were a bit scary. And then he begins to communicate with God and he begins to focus on God in a matter of a short few moments, a short few phrases. He takes his fear and his worry and his hardships and his difficulties and he prays and he worships and he looks to God and he cries out to God. And by the end of the psalm, his eyes are lifted up. God has lifted his head back up He's now got his head up and not down in discouragement and despair. And he's saying, Lord, your salvation is strong and your blessing is upon your people. And God quells his fears and calms his heart and gives him a confidence. And look, I believe that is how God wants us to live in that way. I do not believe, though we face things that are hard. Life is hard, but God is good. Life will always have difficulties, but God will always be faithful. And we will go through things that will intimidate us and make us fearful, but God does not want his people, his children, to become consumed with fear and crippled by panic. But to know that our God is our defender and our protector and our sustainer. We trust him every night when we sleep. All night long, we can trust him with everything in our lives and live in a sense of confidence and peace of mind and know that his blessing is upon us as his people. We'll read ahead the next few Psalms. We'll continue in our journey there next week.